Chapter Thirteen of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, eighteen forty seven to eighteen sixty five, by Ward Hill Lemon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter Thirteen His True Relations with McClellan. The character of no statesman in all the history of the world has been more generally or more completely misunderstood than that of Abraham Lincoln. Many writers describe him as a mere creature of circumstances, floating like a piece of driftwood on the current of events, and about the only attribute of statesmanship they concede to him is a sort of instinctive divination of the popular feeling at a given period, and on a given subject. They do not thus dwarf Mr. Lincoln in set phrase or formal propositions, but that is the logic and effect of their narratives. Some of these writers go even further, and represent him as an almost unconscious instrument in the hands of the Almighty, about as irresponsible as the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which went before the Israelites through the wilderness. The truth is that Mr. Lincoln was at once the ablest and the most adroit politician of modern times. In all the history of the world I can recall no example of a great leader having to do with a people in any degree free, who himself shaped and guided events to the same extent, unless it was Julius Caesar. Mr. Lincoln was not the creature of circumstances. He made circumstances to suit the necessities of his own situation. He was less influenced by the inferior minds around him than was Washington, Jefferson, or Jackson. His policy was invariably formed by his own judgment, and it seldom took even the slightest color from the opinions of others, however decided. In this originality and independence of understanding, he resembled somewhat the great William of Orange. Mr. Lincoln was supposed at the outset of his administration to have placed himself, as it were, under the tutelage of William H. Seward, and later he was generally believed to have abjectly endured the almost insulting domination of Edwin M. Stanton. But I say without the slightest fear of contradiction that neither Mr. Seward nor Mr. Stanton, great men as they both were, ever succeeded either in leading or misleading Mr. Lincoln in a single instance. The administration was not a week old when Mr. Seward had found his level and the larger purposes, dangerous and revolutionary, with which Mr. Stanton entered the War Department, were baffled and defeated before he had time to fashion the instruments of usurpation. Consciously or unconsciously, Mr. Seward and Mr. Stanton, like others, wrought out the will of the great man who had called them to his side to be appropriately used in furtherance of plans far greater and more comprehensive than they themselves had conceived. I shall not linger here to present instances of this subordination of high officials and party leaders to Mr. Lincoln. They may be gleaned without number from the published histories of the times. I shall content myself with recounting some of his relations with the illustrious and at that time powerful Democratic Captain George B. McClellan. General McClellan was as bitterly disliked by the politicians of the country as he was cordially loved by the troops under his command. Whatever may be said by the enemies of this unsuccessful general, it must be remembered that he took command of the Army of the Potomac when it was composed of a mass of undisciplined and poorly armed men. Yet after fighting some of the hardest battles of the war, he left it, in less than eighteen months, 
a splendid military organization, well prepared for the accomplishment of the great achievements afterward attained by General Grant. At the time McClellan took command of that army, the South was powerful in all the elements of successful warfare. It had much changed when General Grant took command. Long strain had greatly weakened and exhausted the forces and resources of the South. There had come a change from the former buoyant bravery of hope to the desperate bravery of doubtful success, and it may well be questioned whether any commander could have crushed the rebellion in the time during which General McClellan was at the head of the army. That he lacked aggressiveness must be admitted by his most ardent admirers. His greatness as a defensive general precluded this quality. At one time, when things seemed at a standstill, and no aggressive movements could be induced by the anxious Washington authorities, Mr. Lincoln went to General McClellan's headquarters to have a talk with him, but for some reason he was unable to get an audience with the general. He returned to the White House much disturbed at his failure to see the commander of the Union forces, and immediately sent for two other general officers to have a consultation. On their arrival he told them he must have someone to talk to about the situation, and as he had failed to see General McClellan, he had sent for them to get their views as to the possibility or probability of soon commencing active operations with the Army of the Potomac. He said he desired an expression of their opinion about the matter, for his was that, if something were not done and done soon, the bottom would fall out of the whole thing and he intended, if General McClellan did not want to use the army, to borrow it from him, provided he could see how it could be made to do something, for, said he, if McClellan can't fish, he ought to cut bait at a time like this. Mr. Lincoln never regarded General McClellan with personal or political jealousy. He never feared him. He once profoundly trusted him, and to the very last he hoped to employ his genius and his popularity in the deliverance of their common country. His unfailing sagacity saw in him a rising general, who should be at once democratic and patriotic, the readiest possible instrument of harmonizing the North, unifying the sentiment of the army, crushing the rebellion, and restoring the Union. Having then no thought of imparting to the war any other object or result than the restoration of the Union, pure and simple, and this being likewise McClellan's view, the harmony and confidence that obtained between them were plants of easy growth. The rise of discord, the political intrigues, Democratic and Republican, which steadily aimed to separate these noble characters, who were as steadily, of their own impulses, tending toward each other, these are matters of public history. Through it all, Mr. Lincoln earnestly endeavored to support McClellan in the field, and the diversion of men and the failure of supplies were never in any degree due to a desire upon his part to cripple the Democratic general. The success of this Democratic general was the one thing necessary to enable the President to hold in check the aggressive leaders of his own party, to restore the Union with the fewest sacrifices and to complete the triumph of his administration without dependence upon interests and factions which he seriously and constantly dreaded. One of the most striking instances of Mr. Lincoln's great moral courage and self-reliance occurred just after the Second Battle of Bull Run. The loss of this battle caused great consternation, not only in Washington, but throughout the whole country. Everything was thrown into confusion. 
all the cabinet officers except secretary wells and secretary seward the latter being absent at the time signed a protest denouncing the conduct of mcclellan and demanding his immediate dismissal from the service which protest however was not delivered to the president the feeling of indignation was very general throughout the country against mcclellan and it was greatly intensified by exaggerated reports of his supposed misconduct notwithstanding this deplorable state of things mcclellan was appointed in command of the forces at washington at a cabinet meeting held three days after this battle the members first learned of this appointment they were thunderstruck at the announcement and great regret was expressed mr stanton with some excitement remarked that no such order had issued from the war department the president then said with great calmness but with some degree of emphasis no mr secretary the order was mine and i will be responsible for it to the country by way of explanation he said something had to be done but there did not appear to be any one to do it and he therefore took the responsibility on himself he then continued to say that mcclellan had the confidence of the troops beyond any other officer and could under the circumstances more speedily and effectively reorganize them and put them into fighting trim than any other general this is what is now wanted most and these said the president were my reasons for placing him in command mr lincoln well knew the danger and was apprehensive of losing perhaps all except one of his cabinet members by this action but he felt at the same time deeper apprehension of danger to the whole country if the army were not immediately reorganized and fitted for instant action he knew he could replace his cabinet from the patriotic men of his acquaintance but he feared he could not replace the army in statu quo unless he took the risk of losing them he fully realized as he said that nearly all the trouble had grown out of military jealousies and that it was time for some one to assert and exercise power he caused personal considerations to be sacrificed for the public good and in doing so he subdued his own personal feelings in the spirit of unselfish patriotism between francis p blair and mr lincoln there existed from the first to last a confidential relationship as close as that maintained by mr lincoln with any other man to mr blair he almost habitually revealed himself upon delicate and grave subjects more fully than to any other when he had conceived an important but difficult plan he was almost certain before giving it practical form to try it by the touchstone of mr blair's fertile and acute mind mr blair understood mr lincoln's conception of the importance of mcclellan to the president and to the country and like the president himself he realized that mcclellan's usefulness unless destroyed by some disaster in the field could be abridged only by some needless misunderstanding between the two he knew the stubborn spirit of the democratic party from long experience in it and with it and he early foresaw the tremendous influence which would inevitably be brought to bear on mcclellan to separate him from lincoln it was because he foresaw this that he desired to place nearest to general mcclellan in the field someone who having the complete confidence of both would form a connecting link which could not be broken to this end about the time general pleasanton was appointed brigadier-general and assigned to report to general mcclellan 
Mr. Blair sought a conference with him and said, You are going to McClellan. You will have confidential relations with him. I like him, and I want him to succeed. But no general can succeed without proper relations with the administration. Say to him from me that Frank P. Blair, Jr. can be of great service to him. I shall have access to the administration and can do much to keep McClellan right. Say to him that he ought to ask for the assignment of Blair to him and to make him his chief of staff. Now, Pleasanton, when you get down in Virginia, say this to Mac, and telegraph me the result. It was then agreed that the communication should be in cipher. If favorable, the weather is fair. If otherwise, the weather is fair but portends a storm. Mr. Blair's message was given to McClellan, and General Pleasanton saw that it made an impression. But General McClellan faltered, subject, no doubt, to some of the influences that Mr. Blair had foreseen. After three days' deliberation, the bad weather was indicated to Mr. Blair. In the campaign for presidential honors in 1864, General McClellan, in his letter of acceptance, repudiated the obvious meaning of the Democratic platform framed for his candidacy. The convention demanded a secession of hostilities with a view of an ultimate convention of states. To this McClellan responded, So soon as it is clear or even probable that our present adversaries are ready for peace on the basis of the Union, we should exhaust all the resources of statesmanship to secure such a peace. In this he stood precisely with Lincoln. The sentiments of the representatives of the Democratic Party in convention assembled seemed to be peace first and union would inevitably follow. The sentiments of the respective chosen party standard-bearers were union first, that peace might follow. There was at no time during the campaign a reasonable doubt of the election of Mr. Lincoln over General McClellan, Early in this campaign, on going into Mr. Lincoln's office one night, I found him in a more gleeful humor than usual. He was alone, and said, I am glad you have come in. Lamon, do you know that we have met the enemy, and they are ourn? I think the cabal of obstructionists am busted. I feel certain that if I live, I am going to be re-elected. Whether I deserve to be or not, it is not for me to say, but on the score even of remunerative chances for speculative service, I now am inspired with the hope that our disturbed country further requires the valuable service of your humble servant. Jordan has been a hard road to travel, but I feel now that notwithstanding the enemies I have made and the faults I have committed, I'll be dumped on the right side of that stream. I hope, however, that I may never have another four years of such anxiety, tribulation, and abuse. My only ambition is, and has been, to put down the rebellion and restore peace, after which I want to resign my office, go abroad, take some rest, study foreign governments, see something of foreign life, and in my old age die in peace." with the good will of all of God's creatures. About two weeks before the election, Mr. Lincoln began to consider how to make the result most decisive. He again recurred to McClellan, and again consulted Mr. Blair. 
It seemed that neither of these sagacious men could entirely free himself from the thought that, in one way or another, General McClellan, with the Democratic Party at his back, was somehow to contribute a mighty blow toward the suppression of the rebellion and the pacification of the country. With the respect which they both entertained for General McClellan's intelligence, with the faith they both had in his patriotism, they did not doubt that, seeing as they did the utter impossibility of his own election to the presidency, he would be willing, if the way were graciously open to him, to save his party from the humiliation of a crushing defeat, to use his remaining power to restore the Union without further unnecessary bloodshed, and to tranquilize the country without more needless and heedless political strife. Mr. Lincoln said to Mr. Blair, I shall be re-elected. No one can doubt it. I do not doubt it, nor do you. It is patent to all. General McClellan must see it as plainly as we do. Why should he not act upon it, and help me to give peace to this distracted country? Would it not be a glorious thing for the Union cause and the country, now that my re-election is certain, for him to decline to run, favor my election, and make certain a speedy termination of this bloody war? Don't you believe that such a course upon his part would unify public partisan sentiment, and give a decisive and fatal blow to all opposition to the re-establishment of peace in the country? I think he is man enough and patriot enough to do it. Do you? You have been his friend and mine. Will you try this last appeal to General McClellan's patriotism? Mr. Blair heartily assented, and as the result of their consultation, Mr. Lincoln wrote a most remarkable autograph letter to his rival, suggesting that he retire from the canvas and allow Mr. Lincoln's election, then visibly impending, to be as nearly unanimous as might be. The compensations to General McClellan and his party for the timely relinquishment of a mere shadow were to be McClellan's immediate elevation to be General of the Army, the appointment of his father-in-law, Marcy, to be Major General, and the very substantial recognition of the democracy which would necessarily have followed these arrangements. This letter containing these distinct propositions was placed in Mr. Blair's hands and by him delivered to General McClellan. It was the attempted stroke of a master. Had it succeeded, had the propositions contained in the letter been accepted, Mr. Lincoln might have lived to prevent the follies and the crimes of Reconstruction, and to bless his country with an era of peace and goodwill, thus preventing those long years of ferocious political contention over the results of the war which followed its conclusion and his murder. What the great soldier might have done, if left alone to determine for himself the proper course of action in the premises, can never be known. The letter was submitted by General McClellan to some of his party friends in New York, and its wise and statesmanlike propositions were declined. On the morning of the election he resigned his commission. His party was routed, and upon the death of Mr. Lincoln was opened the new Iliad of partisan conflict and reconstruction woes. Mr. Lincoln fearlessly struck out and boldly pursued in the situations the most exacting capital plans, of which none knew except those who might be absolutely necessary to their execution. If he failed in the patriotic objects which he proposed to accomplish by coalition with McClellan, 
and was ultimately compelled to achieve them by less napoleonic and more tedious methods the splendid conception and the daring attempt were his alone and prove him one of the most masterful politicians of this or any recent age the division of the roman world between the members of the triumvirate was not comparable to this proposal of his because the roman was a smaller world than the american and it was partitioned among three while this was only to be halved more than a quarter of a century has passed and still the press teems with inquiries concerning the relations between lincoln and mcclellan with accusation and defense by the literary partisans of each had the general seen fit to respond to the magnanimous tender of the president their names would have been equally sacred in every american household and their fame would have been united like their parties and their country by an act of patriotic statesmanship unparalleled in the history of this world end of chapter thirteen his true relations with mcclellan read by john greenman